So I got really excited when I got my first payment, which was like $1.20 something, I think. And I was like, oh, I've just made money from something that I built. This is amazing. It was super hacky and it was kind of hard to be like, guys, pay for this feature, but I can't promise you that it's going to work for everyone because I know 100% that it's not. And in three days time, I pull up my stats to see, you know, how's my app doing? And, you know, 99% of my users got the update. And for those 99%, the app crashes for them every time they open it. My name is Rob Joseph, and I am an Android freelancer and indie developer of Read It To Me. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Rob Joseph created a way to have the messages sent to your phone read to you out loud. All this and more on Code Story. Tech has been Rob Joseph's thing for as long as he can remember. At four years old, he was the only person in his household who knew how to use the TV and video recorder. Nowadays, he's into weightlifting and going to the gym. And his favorite lift is deadlift since he can continually make progress on his goals. He loves to hang out with friends and his partner, sharing a good meal or watching an amazing movie. Prior to lockdown, he was really into proper nutritional eating and cooking his own food, from which he lost a ton of weight and created his Twitter handle, Low Carb Rob. Outside of those things, he's a podcast host of the budding show Coffee and Coding, which he started during the COVID lockdown, of course, after a few years of procrastination. A quick note, given that you are listening to this podcast, you should look up his show right now and subscribe. Rob interviews app developers on the latest news, tips, and has in-depth discussions around how to be a better app developer. Prior to freelance development, he worked in an office as an IT consultant and had to ride the train to the office. Being packed in the car like a sardine, he would see he received a message on his phone, but he had no way to get to it. He wanted a way to have these messages read to him. This is the creation story of Read It To Me. Read It To Me is an app that, at the bare bones of it, it basically reads your messages that you get into your phone to you. So basically, the way that I came up with the idea and how I got started and how it ended up being my first Android app that I released for myself, and probably the first app that I actually built ever, was I used to work in an office not doing Android work. I used to be an IT consultant. So the label they used to give you when you're an IT consultant basically means they'll get you to do anything with computers. So I think at the time I was working as tech support for a website or probably a couple of websites and so I was on the train going into work and in London if you've ever been on the underground at rush hour you're all packed in like sardines so I'd be actually not on the underground I'd be on the overground to get to the underground so I have a signal so this is back 2011 so you know you didn't have wi-fi underground and so I'd be on the train I'm packed in like a sardine I've got my headphones on because I'm listening to music or I'm listening to a podcast and I'll hear a ping because I've got a message from someone but I can't, I literally can't move to get to my phone to see what the message is or who sent it or anything like that. 
And this was at the time when I just started playing with Android as a hobby. I'd probably been at it for about six months just in my spare time. So I figured I was going to try and write an app for myself to basically solve that problem. And that's kind of where Root It To Me started. So the way that I wanted it to work for myself was I only wanted it to read messages when I had headphones plugged in. But I didn't want to have to go on my phone and turn the app on and then plug my headphones in. So the way that it works is if you set it up different profiles, so you can have a profile for headphones. So anytime a pair of headphones is connected, it will read whichever apps you've told it to read. So WhatsApp or Signal or Slack messages to you. And then when you unplug your headphones, it just switches off. Like now it works with Bluetooth. It will work depending on Wi-Fi networks that you're connected to and things like that. But that, that was like at the bare bones, it just reads messages to you when you can't read them yourself on your phone. That sounds incredibly useful. So uh, let's dive into the MVP then. So tell me about the MVP. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to get it off the ground? So it was probably about two weeks to build a working version. And I remember, so when I was at this job, I basically had no work to do. But it was one of these jobs where you have to pretend you have work to do because they're expecting you to do work, even though they haven't given you any work to do. So, you know, you, you're there, you're not doing anything, you're on your web browser, browsing, whatever. I think at the time I was probably like reading every article on Lifehacker or something like that. And then, you know, somebody walks past and you have to suddenly pretend that you're doing something, even though everybody else is probably in the same boat. Um, and especially with support, because if there's no support tickets, like what am I supposed to be doing? So I couldn't do it at work. But what I used to do was I used to open up Notepad and then I used to shrink the text on Notepad to like eight pixels or something crazy like that. And then I'd sit there and I'd write pseudocode in my head so that when I go home, I could translate what I've written into actual code. So I did that for about two weeks. And I think the MVP was done in about two weeks. It worked for my purpose, which was basically it would read messages to me when I had headphones on. The first MVP was it would just read SMS messages. And then it built, we built on it, well, I built on it from there. Um, to build to read app notifications but again this was in 2011 so on android now for people that aren't familiar there is a service that you can subscribe to as an app where you can get notification information from other apps but in 2011 you couldn't do this the only way you could do this is if you were an app that listed itself as an accessibility app which means that you're for people that are disabled so they literally can't see the screen or they can't hear the messages so you get access to all this extra information so once i figured that out it was kind of a hack to start getting information from notifications and then you had to start basically decompiling the notification objects to try and figure out which text is the title which text is the message which text tells you which app this message is from and what time it was sent and all, all this kind of different information but yeah to answer your question it was about two weeks to get an MVP off the ground and a super hacky way of doing it. When you're building that MVP, when you're building any MVP, right, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs um, as far as, you know, I'm going to do things quick and I'm going to get this out or I'm going to you know, do something in a super hacky way. So let's dive into those. Tell me about those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how did you cope with them? So there was two things at the time. So one, it was I was building the app for myself that was it there was no maybe i'll release this and see if people want to use it yet so i didn't really have to worry about code not being good or this not being you know usable across all apps and it only works for whatsapp or anything like that because it was just primarily for me and as long as it fit my purpose as far as i was concerned it was all good but then the second point to that was 
I had kind of an idea of like what's a startup and what's an MVP, but I didn't have any real world experience with it. So I didn't really have that kind of um, knowledge to think, oh, people aren't going to like this if I put it out. So I don't remember at which point I put it out from when I built it. But I remember at some point I listed it on a forum as just just an APK, which is you can just sideload the file onto your phone um, and it will install the app. And I listed it on XDA Developers Forum, which I was really active on at the time, which was an Android forum. It's not for developers. It's basically for anybody that was an Android enthusiast at the time. And I remember I listed it on there and I just created like a forum thread. And I was like, hey, I've written this app. This is what it does. And then people would install it. And I got a little bit of feedback. And I was like, oh, this is cool. I think the first comment that I got, I was so excited because I was like, oh, somebody's actually used something that I've made. So at that time, I didn't have to worry about you know, it's not a great app because there was no expectation. For me, there was no expectation of what it's supposed to be. And I think from a user's perspective, because it was an enthusiast forum, anything that you put out there that's new and different, people are excited about. Really, it was how far did I want to take it before I wanted to put it on the Play Store, which is when kind of the trade-offs came in. But I think from my point of view, it's like I want to, I want it to be good enough for me, which it was. And there was a bunch of things that I wanted to do, which was, which would be like um, what it does now, which is it will turn on if you're connected to certain Wi-Fi networks or specific Bluetooth devices. But to get it off the ground, I was like, really, all it has to do is connect to headphones. And there also has to be a toggle on it. So you can just turn it on if you want for other scenarios. So there was definitely a trade-off there. And then the other trade-off was how do I convince people to turn on accessibility services? Because I can either release the app and it only reads SMS apps, which was super easy back in the day. Like the phone would never ask you for permission to read SMS. When you install the app, it will tell you these are all the permissions it's got. And you had to make the decision there and then like, do I want to install it or not? But when you turned on accessibility service, which is what you'd need for my app to read app notifications. So anything that's not an SMS, it would pop up with a message saying, are you sure you want to turn on this service? This app's now going to have access to basically everything on your device. So that was kind of a decision was like, did I want to put that? Because I got a few comments from people saying, you know, why does it need this? Why does it need that? And it's really hard to explain to people. All I'm using it for is one thing. Like I can't do anything about it. There's no granular permissions. You either turn it on and I get access to everything, but I'm only using one thing or you don't. Basically, there was no other way to do it. And I spoke to a few other developers who had kind of big apps at the time about how they approached that problem. And they were kind of in the same boat, which was, it was just good communication. I think I was in a lucky position where I wasn't really intending to make money or really for anybody to use it. So I was really excited when people actually started to use it. But because of that, it made it a lot easier for me. I didn't really have to think of anything in the terms of trade-offs. I just had to think of it in the terms of if it's good enough for me, then it's going to be good enough for you. And then when people start requesting features, that's when I can start implementing that stuff as opposed to building everything I could imagine straight away and nobody using those features. That actually piques my interest a little bit in the sense of, you know, good enough for me. And maybe it's maybe it's just me personally that struggles with this building projects and like, you know, struggling with, oh, I don't want to go build that because I'm just building it for myself. But it, it sounds like, like this is something you wanted. So how did you find, you know, that inspiration to go build something just for you, knowing that you're going to make it work for you and then you're going to add features on that are probably going to be helpful for other people? Definitely the answer is coming back to me outside of tech. The answer to the question would be because for me, tech is fun. Like I was learning Android as a hobby. I wasn't learning it to turn it into a career 
I was literally learning it because I wanted to build apps for the phone that I had just bought and I already knew a tiny little bit of Java so it was kind of easy for me to get into and then once I was into it it was fun. So the way that I was able to say I'm going to build it for me and it needs to be good enough for me was because it literally it was no different to me then than it is for me now to like pick up a Raspberry Pi and spend a weekend trying to build a Plex server or something and it has no benefit to anyone else other than me and probably in about a week's time that also has no benefit to me because I've moved on to the next project. In that sense it was it was pretty easy for me to say I'm just going to build stuff for me and what I kind of realized when I did that was one it takes all the pressure off you don't have what's what's the minimum viable product and what's the release date and how often are we going to ship things and all that kind of stuff because it's just like this is my app you guys can go and use it and if you want stuff ask me and I'll build it and that was it and then also from there I started to release more apps which again were all just apps that basically hobby apps that I polished up a little bit so that they could go on the play store and they could be user friendly because people would actually know how to use them I never ever got any pushback saying you know this app is not it's not good enough or it's not polished or there's something better out there because there wasn't I was building stuff for me because the stuff that I wanted didn't exist anywhere else for a consumer it was kind of a take it or leave it situation but for me it was like I'm just putting this out there for fun and if you want it great and if you don't want it you don't have to use it and the only time it really came into it has to be a little bit better than being just for me was when I started to have paid features and then it was like okay so now I have to have paid features if people are paying for the product then it needs to be better than oh it's good enough for me so it needs to be good enough for you whereas when it was free the, that dynamic wasn't there it was like I'm giving you this for free and that was that and also I think I never even to this day really I never saw any of these apps as a product I saw them as like my hobby app that somebody else is now using I think I think it was mostly just a mindset thing tell me about how you progressed the product then so you mentioned you know paid features in app you mentioned you know asking people you know what they wanted how did you progress it and then how did you figure out what was the next most important thing to build so I released the app officially, I think it was April 2012, officially as in I posted it on the Play Store and then I wrote to a couple of news websites and one of them picked it up. So it got a few downloads from that. And I think at that time I released it as a, a free app and I think I added a paid add-on, which at, so at the time you didn't have in-app purchases, you had, you buy the app and you'd have like a light version of the app and then you'd either have a pro version of the app which was exactly the same but a separate listing on the play store or the app store and it would cost money or you would have a separate listing on the play store or the app store which would be read it to me unlocker which would basically someone would purchase that and then you need the free version and you need the pay version installed on your phone and the free version would check your phone and say hey you've got the paid unlocker installed so you get these extra things so I got really excited when I got my first payment, which was like $1.20 something, I think. And I was like, oh, I've just made money from something that I built. This is amazing. But again, I still had a job and this was still like my fun app project. So nothing really happened with it. And then after about a year, um, I think I'd had about 5,000 downloads, which I thought was amazing. Um, having been at like Android development now since, since, well, since then, which would have been 2011, 2012, 5,000 downloads in a year is, is not what I would call amazing. I decided that I was basically going to rewrite the app because I wanted to add new features. And because I was building the app as I was learning how to build apps, 
the first version that I'd built was terrible, so I couldn't build on it. And that was a year later, and I wanted to add features. But in order for me to have done that, I had to rewrite the whole thing. So I rewrote the whole thing. Um, I emailed a bunch of websites again, and they they wrote about it. And so I ended up. I don't know how many downloads I got in the first like week or month or year, but I knew that I beat five thousand by quite a lot. And oh, so to cut back in the story a little bit, so I also had a problem. So when you publish an app to the App Store, it's signed by a key, and if you lose the key, you can't update the app. And of course, I was new to app development, and this was my fun hobby. So when I went to update the app a year later, I couldn't because I couldn't find the key. And if I could find the key, I didn't know what password I'd use. I basically had to start from scratch. So I closed the old one down. I released the new one. It had paid features, and I think the way that I looked at how do I kind of write the next feature and what's next was it started off with user feedback because I was on a forum, so I would get requests from people, and depending on how many people requested something, I would build it because most of the requests were pretty straightforward. And they were things that I didn't want to use at all. So, for example, somebody would request that they would like the message to be read to them, but they don't want to read who it's from. So, to me, it's like I don't want that. Why would I want that? I want to know who it's from. But some people just want the message, and vice versa. Some people just wanted it to say, you know, new message from John. They didn't want it to say what the message was. So these were easy things for me to build. And then when it came to adding paid features, I felt like I had to add stuff that added value. So. The second iteration of the app was where the accessibility service came in, and I was like, "Okay, cool. So the free version of the app, you get SMS, and the paid version of the app, you get every app on your phone. It will try and read a notification from that." So I thought that was a good one, and then the next iteration of that was、um, lots of people coming back to me and saying, "We'd really like to reply." So then I added a voice reply function, and I guess the interesting thing about this app is all of the stuff that I was doing at the time. Was super hacky. I was trying to get a notification that I wasn't supposed to be able to get, and then when I got it, I was trying to figure out what it said. So I had to reverse engineer that. So some apps would work, some apps wouldn't work. Some apps like Gmail wouldn't work. It would just say you have two new emails, and people would tell me why can't it read what their message is, and I'd be like,、oh, I don't know, because I'm trying to write generic code that kind of works for everything, rather than trying to write code for every single app in existence so it could read its notification. And then when I did the voice reply thing, it was the same thing. So I think I added voice reply around the time when watch apps started to come out, because what happened was on Android, and I assume on iOS would be similar, is you could then add a new notification that would only show on the watch, but it would have options to do things. So someone sends you a WhatsApp, and on on your phone it would just say, you know, new WhatsApp message from whoever, and on your watch it would say new WhatsApp message, and then you add options to read it. Or to call that person, or to reply. So I basically had to reverse engineer. I had to pull the notification out of the Android system when it came through for the Watch app. But I had to pull it out on the phone, then reverse engineer how the reply function worked. So then I could piggyback on that. So when somebody wanted to reply, I could capture their response using just the normal voice command thing, and then pipe their response into this thing that I'd reverse engineered, which would then hopefully send the message. So it was it was really it was super hacky, and it was kind of hard to be like, guys, pay for this feature, but I can't promise you that it's going to work for everyone because I know 100% that it's not. And kind of the way I got around that was I, I introduced a, tr- a trial, which was you get two week free trial of these features. Which is one to see. One, it was kind of a marketing tactic because 
if you use it and it works for you, the likelihood is after two weeks, you're not going to want to lose it. So you'll pay the dollar or whatever it was to unlock. But also if you use it and it doesn't work for you, you can't really complain and say, I paid money for this and it doesn't work because there's the risk that it won't work. And realistically, the risk is still there today because everything the app does, even though the Android system that it works on has come on so much in terms of giving developers access to do things, is still super hacky in how it works. So this is going to be this is going to be a unique question to your solution. Well, it's going to be a little unique because you built this on your own, right? When we talk about team, you're the team, Rob. So I'm curious, you know, you don't you don't necessarily have an official team, but how would you how would you characterize the people that influenced your decisions on building this product, right? So it could be the community, it could be other developers, people you've interviewed, it could be um, people you've worked with, anything like that. Tell me, tell me what influenced you in how you approached this problem. The biggest influence is definitely the users the community that comes back to me and I get emails every day some of them are you know this doesn't work can you fix it this doesn't work why doesn't this work and then you get a lot of them that are like you know this product's really great I wish it would do this and it's the I wish it would do this would be me because I've built the product for myself and I'm happy with it like where is that right now if I never coded another line for it again I would be like it does exactly what I want and I'm good so the I wish it did this emails that I get are kind of what drives the product and influences the decisions. And then outside of that, I guess it's also so other developers across the years, I spoke to a bunch of developers, especially when I'm trying to do hacky stuff. And I've seen other apps unrelated that are doing the same thing and I can email them and nine times out of 10, they reply and they were like, oh, yeah, Rob, I had that problem. This is how I did it. And so that kind of stuff is really cool. So then the third thing I would say that influence it ironically is the tech something might come out and i might be like oh i want to use that in my app and i have no reason to use it in my app other than i want to learn how to use this thing or i think it's really cool so for example you know i had voice reply going and then i came across a product called nuance which said that they had a better voice capturing service than google so i integrated that into the product and it turns out that they didn't or that it was on par i should say and it was a paid service so i kind of scrapped it after a while but definitely, I guess the last thing would be that the tech drives the product. So every time a new feature is released on an OS, I try and think of how could I take advantage of that? So for example, Android released priority mode, which is, you know, essentially it's do not disturb. So how could I take advantage of that? Okay, I could figure out a way that the user could say, I still want this app read in do not disturb mode, but I don't want this app read to me in do not disturb mode. So there's, there's kind of little things like that. And then... Another idea that I'm kind of flirting with now is that idea where, so on a watch, you get more than one option, right? You could reply, but you could also call, or you could also do something else depending on what app it is. So maybe if the users have a paid version of my app, instead of my app asking them, you know, new message from blah, 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 would you like to reply? It could say, would you like to call? Those are all things that, you know, nobody's requested that one. That would be, I just want to see if I can do it. And I guess a big part of what drives it is just things that I want to do. I have a product that people are using, so it could make their life better if I could do cool things. But also it's fun for me if I could do cool things. So I guess I'm the whole team, but if there was no users, then it would just be me using the app. 
Well, let's let's talk about scalability a little bit. Did you build this to scale efficiently from the very beginning, or is this something you're kind of fighting as you bring on more users? This is a super easy question for me in the sense that with this app is 100% offline. It, it has there's no backend, there's no there's no server, there's essentially nothing to scale. The only scale is does your device have the capability to do what the app is doing? And the app is so lightweight that the, like when I started, that was an issue. There was devices that couldn't handle voice reply and there was devices that couldn't handle continuously reading messages because you know it would destroy the battery. In 2020, that is not an issue. So in terms of scalability, like the great thing about this is the app is a standalone, it's on your device and that's it. And if I pulled the app from the Play Store tomorrow, it would still work for you and I would have no idea that you were using it. That's interesting. So you're kind of your scalability is just based on the Google infrastructure. There's no back end. It just works on the device. Yeah. The the only the only thing I could comment on in scalability is basically can you get users to actually use the so like my scalability would be not so much the infrastructure and more so how many users can I get to use the app. Right. Did you have to take into account versions with Android? Because I know, you know, there's a gajillion. So I, I don't remember the first version of Android that I released it on, but it was probably two point something. So it was super old. And then it started to get a bit more fragmented. And the biggest issue that you would have in terms of all the different versions was Samsung devices. They always did something different than what they were expected to do. So the app works perfectly on every single device except for what is currently the most popular device, which would be a Samsung Galaxy something. And there'd be no good reason for it. And you'd have to go online and you'd have to find someone who's found the issue and then find someone who's found some sort of hacky work around the issue. In, I think it was Android 4.3 is when they released the listener notification service, which was them making it kind of official that any app that registers to have access to this service can now receive notifications from other apps and do whatever it wants with it. And I think Read It To Me was the first app that was live because I saw the announcement and then I coded for like three hours and then I published it and then I emailed Android Police and I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm the first app that's actually taking advantage of this service. And they published an article saying that that was true. So that was pretty cool. Since then, it's improved a lot. And also I drop support as I go. So like I don't support two point anything anymore. I think I support five point something now. But that's mostly because 5 point something to Android 11, which is what we're up now, there's no changes that require me to do extra work to maintain. But when that changes, then you kind of have to evaluate, right, how many users do I have on this version that is causing me a lot of issues to try and maintain and keep things working? Like, I don't, I don't really have a threshold, but I would say if it's less than 10%, I'm probably going to scrap that version. And those users... Like they don't lose out, they don't not have the app anymore, just they can't get updates. So it works perfectly for them. But if, if I issue new updates or if I issue new features, they won't get that. But then at the same time, at some point in the future, they're going to buy a new phone and they're going to reinstall my app and then they're going to have those new features. So like fragmentation and all the different Android versions, they definitely come into it, especially when you try and do hacky things because it's undocumented. It might work on one Android version, but it won't work on another. I don't have every single device with every single version installed to be able to test all of those things. And also it's kind of hard to test when you don't really know what's going to be broken. So it's not like you can test and say, okay, this bit works on every single one because it might. 
or it might not or it might work for some apps so you know whatsapp notifications might work perfectly on android 3 the way that i think they will but on android 4 they work completely different so somebody on that version of android my app won't work for them but i will have no idea until somebody messaged me and says hey whatsapp doesn't work on this app on this phone then it ended up being like the way to work around that was kind of adding debug logs i basically have about 15 different places in the app where you can send me an email to kind of avoid getting bad reviews and when they send me an email it attaches numbers and stuff at the bottom so i used to be able to look for it and be like right this is the android version you're on this is what you're trying to do and then see if there's some correlation with other users so then i could start investigating those kind of issues well as you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built what are you most proud of I'm most proud of two things, which would be one, that the app is still going today. So that was the first app I released and that was 2011. And since then, personally, I've probably released like over 20 apps. And out of my 20 apps that I've released, I think there's only four that are still available. And this one is by far the longest running app. I'm really happy with that. And then I think the second one, would be that I still use it um, because like I said, I've released so many apps because I wanted them. And this is the only one that I still use day in, day out on a daily basis. So let's flip the script a little bit throughout the process. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you responded to it. I mean, there's probably too many mistakes for me to name, but some of the more obvious ones would be things that as a young developer or people that are listening to this, should realize as any founder or technical founder or anybody that's releasing a product is you need to test things before you release them and you need to test them as thoroughly as you possibly can so some of the bad mistakes that i've made would have been you know i've got this great new update and it does this that and the other and i built it in a weekend and i'm super excited and it works for me and then i release it and then i forget like not even that i forget i release it And then I go to work and I go about my day-to-day life. And in three days time, I pull up my stats to see, you know, how's my app doing? And, you know, 99% of my users got the update. And for those 99%, the app crashes for them every time they open it. So for three days, everyone's updated this app and they can't use it. It will just crash. And sometimes it will tell you that it's crashed and I'll get an email. But again, I haven't checked my email support box for three days because, you know, I've been doing other things because this is just a hobby, quote unquote, to me. Yeah, those 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 were always the biggest mistakes that I made. Um, and I got a lot better about it in terms of, you know, rolling out apps. So, you know, roll it out 10%, give it a couple of days. If there's no issues, roll it out 30%, give it a couple of days and build up to that 100% rollout. Test it as much as you can. I bought a lot more devices so I could test on a lot more different screen sizes and different app versions and different phones. And I think I got a lot more kind of just more wary that this is these are things that could happen. And it's fine for me because, like I said, it's a hobby thing. So, you know, if if my app ends up getting a thousand one star ratings and nobody's ever going to install it again because he's going to install an app that's rating is less than one, then, you know, it's not the end of the world. But if if I was a company or if this was my living or if this was my startup, then that's a really easy way to put yourself in a really deep hole really quickly. And then that's really hard to dig yourself out of as well. So what does the future look like for Read It To Me, uh, for the product and for you? The future for the product, in my head at least, 
is is just ticking over there's going to be new android versions i'm going to update it so they work with those android versions i haven't had any big feature requests for quite a while which i'm hoping means that people or the users that i have are happy with the app and not that they just you know feel like nothing's going to happen if they ask me and for myself there's also not really much else that i want out of it so the future for it is basically it's just ticking over and if there's new cool things that come out or technologies or if there's something that you know in a year's time i really want to add i will and otherwise it's it's just gonna it's just gonna stay doing what it's doing in terms of read it to me it's just going to be maintenance and updates and crash fixes and like i feel like i'm kind of in the situation where i have a mature product that has one very specific goal and it's meeting its goal you know don't try and fix something that's not broke comes to mind and then for me it's just freelancing hosting my podcast thinking of new other apps that i might want to use that i could then build i'm flirting with the idea of revamping one of the apps that i build to find coffee shops which covid definitely threw a spanner in the works because i don't think anybody's looking for an app to find cool coffee shops nearby while we're all in lockdown but once once covid is done i'm hoping to re-release that because that again was another nice fun side project and something that i actually use excellent so who influences the way that you work? You know, a, a CTO, a person, architect, I mean, really, really anyone. Who, name a person you look up to and why. Probably the most influential person, I should say, in terms of how I work. And this is kind of what comes to mind. So I'm, I'm going to run with it because I'm going to go with that. You know, your first thought is probably the right one. Is not um, a CTO or a tech person at all. And it's probably actually... Um, a guy called Gary Vaynerchuk and the reason being is I remember when I was an IT consultant so when I had this job where I had to pretend that I was working so for people that don't know him he's he doesn't like to be called a motivational speaker but at least when I found him that's kind of what he was he's got a really good energy he makes you feel good he talks black and white he has a podcast he's got a YouTube channel all that kind of stuff and if you listen to him for about 10 minutes you feel pumped so whatever it is that you were planning to do whether it was going to go and walk the dog or you know be the next Mark Zuckerberg you're like yes yes I could do that and I remember reading his book while I was at work in this job that I hated and I basically got his so I think I bought his book in paperback but then I downloaded his book as a pdf file and I installed a ebook reader in my browser and then I installed a different browser plugin that would re-theme whatever you're looking at so anybody walking past would think I was looking at some sort of code, but I was actually reading his book. And I think I read his whole book in like four hours while I was at work. And I guess like a bunch of things stand out for me, which would be that experience, which is kind of where I started my Android journey in terms of like how I do things, you know, like his big thing is release things and then see what sticks and see what hits and don't really overthink it. So, you know, if I got an idea for a feature, I could build the MVP and I can release it and get feedback because the feedback that people fear or at least the people that the feedback that I get from people that you know that I should be afraid of is you know what if people don't like it what if you release this feature but they actually want 15 other features combined with it but the feedback that people forget is what if people don't care like what if I can build something and release it in a weekend or I could spend two months building something and nobody even realizes that that feature is in the app anymore um so I guess probably weirdly and I've never really thought about it so for me it's pretty weird to say it but I think it kind of rings true is probably that is the biggest influence in how I work if you could go back to the beginning 
when you just got started building Read It To Me, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? UX and UI, 100%. The UX and the UI is still terrible. When I released it, it was terrible because I built it to work for me. So I understand what each one of these buttons does, but nobody else does. Um, I wasn't very good at copywriting, so even my best attempts at trying to explain what things do were terrible. I think that makes a big difference because people need to be able to use the product and they need to be able to understand what it does and it would have alleviated a lot of the support emails and the frustration and the bad reviews I got if people knew the configuration that they've got in the app isn't what they think it's going to do and that was all down to my bad UX and my bad design and my bad copywriting. So I think if I could go back to the start, I mean what I've learned from building apps since then is you need to walk people through even what you think is the simplest of things because they have no concept like they install the app and they they have a roundabout idea of what they expect it to do but they have no concept whatsoever of what is the app how does it work behind the scenes or anything like that so even what you think is the most simplest thing and it's like oh just press that button that's what you're looking for they don't know that you don't know the person that you're going to get is going to have the patience to email you and be hey Rob, like I really like your app, but I'm trying to get to do this and I can't figure it out. You don't know if they're that person or they're the person that's going to go and leave a scathing one-star review. This product doesn't work. It's rubbish. I paid one pound something for this. I want my money back. And all of that could have been alleviated with just having better UI and better UX and tutorials and walking users through what things are supposed to do and kind of being really clear on what the app is. Because I still get emails today from people saying, that they want it to read articles that they're looking at on the screen and how do I turn this function on? And so obviously I'm doing something wrong there somewhere in my marketing or in my description or in how the app is set up where they think that this is something that the app does and it's absolutely not. And then in that case, the only thing that I could think it comes down to is a name. And unfortunately I've put myself in a box where that's the one thing that I now can't change, so. So last question, Rob. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young builder who has created the next big thing. They are jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to you, to the world. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I guess my advice would be one, ship it. If you've got it, if you're excited to show it to me, if if you're excited to show it to people, ship it. And whether that looks like shipping it to the whole world or having an email list of early users that can get access to it, you want feedback from real people um, and especially in that situation like I'm never gonna if, so, if I was on a plane and somebody shows me hey I built this product it looks awesome blah 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 I'm never gonna turn around and say to them no it doesn't no it doesn't whatever you've just spent the last year doing please go home go get a job go work on something else like I'm never gonna say that and I'm gonna be as encouraging as possible but what you want is real feedback from your target audience who is gonna say yes it's great but this other app that I use does this and so then the thing would be after that is just wait and evaluate the feedback because so so I've been doing this since 2011 and I've released like a bunch of apps and my feedback loop is pretty small right I release it users come back to me via, via email or forums or sometimes like instant messaging and they say they want this they want this and it's really easy for me to build those features because there is no team and there is no back end and I don't have to you know clear it with anyone I don't have to factor it into a sprint I can just build it, I could build it as soon as I get the email, I could ship it and I'm done. But everybody else, like not everybody 
is in that situation and I've done freelancing since 2012 so I've worked for so many different startups and corporates and the one thing that they don't do well is one they don't manage release dates well because they think oh it has to be perfect before it's released when it doesn't and there'll be issues that I could call out to them as a developer and other developers could call out but they don't want the feedback from us they want the feedback from an actual user if we say it they're going to say you know well you're looking at it wrong but if 50 users come back to them and say hey this doesn't make sense they might look at it differently so you want to get it shipped and then I would say the other thing that I've seen startups do wrong that I've worked for is they don't wait for the feedback loop. They have a whole roadmap of features for the next year that they're going to release. And they have that roadmap in place before they've even released the app to get any feedback as to whether it solves the problem that they're trying to solve. So my advice would be ship it, wait for the feedback, and then decide what your next move is going to be. That's solid advice. Well, Rob, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for being on Code Story and telling the creation story of Read It To Me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a lot of fun. And this concludes another chapter Code Story of Code is Story. hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to 10 bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.